Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk <laughs> Recorded live. Good evening. Yeah. <laughs> this is Mr. Brown. Yeah, hi. I'm going to just be listening in today. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, hey, thanks so far. It's me and Brian so far. Beautiful. What a perfect group. <laughs> <laughs> it's a boys' night. We'll wait. we'll wait a couple. I think Mars jumping on soonish. How was your week uh, out in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles? Beautiful and sunny. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think I'm booking my next trip next week. Oh, that's exciting. Are you going to come visit us? Yeah, I think in June. Great. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll let you know when I have dates. Um, cool. That's great. What a treat. Did someone else jump on? My dog, Kopi, came into the room. <laughs> Is he working on radical forgiveness? <laughs> He's working on- I think dogs already have that. <laughs> Yeah. They've already figured out that stuff. Yeah. It's a sweetheart. This is his time after dinner where normally we go out and play in the yard and he goes, come on, Dad, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) You can mute us and uh, put it on to uh, take us out in the yard with you. Hello? Hey. Who's this? Hey. This is Mar. Hey, Mar. Hey. It's Stephen and Brian. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Brian. Hi, Mar. Hey. Hey, it's Jesse, too. I'm listening in. I might chime in every once in a while, but uh, I'm just going to kind of observe tonight. And um, I'll go ahead and give you the green light to go ahead and start, Stephen. Okay. Well, I will pray us in tonight. Let's uh, let's all close our eyes and let's find a, a comfortable but upright seated position. And taking a big breath, filling up the belly, the ribs, and the lungs. Maybe just holding it for a second at the top, and then opening the mouth and just letting the breath slowly release. And we give gratitude this evening for being able to join in together and give gratitude for the wonders of technology that that we can all meet together from all these different points in time and space here. 
And we offer up anything today that did not serve us. Anything that we felt like we maybe didn't show up for, maybe we played small at. And we offer those up and we just cast them aside and recognize our perfection and our wholeness as these beautiful beings of light, these beautiful creations of God that are coming together tonight to have these discussions that are so needed in the, the healing of this, of this planet and of this, of this society. And we give this work up to the world, not hoarding it for ourselves, but offering it up as a service to our brothers and sisters. And so it is. Amen. 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 So Mara and I are going to kind of split this up tonight, and I'm going to take up the, uh, the first chapter here uh, that I don't think I picked by accident uh, of chapter six. Um, any insights anyone wants to share that they've maybe had through reading these chapters this week? Is it, is it just me? <laughs> you, me, and Mar. It's all who should be. Just may not have heard, my older brother Jeffrey was here a few days ago. I showed him the book, and he started reading it and is fascinated by it. He's a family counselor also, and he asked if he could borrow it. And so I said, sure, so I don't have my copy in front of me, although I've read the entire thing. I just, I love that book. So uh, what is, what's chapter six? Uh, the mechani- mechanisms of the ego. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved this. Uh, I love the line at the, the end of the first chapter, or sorry, of the first paragraph um, of the two roles of the ego. The first being casting the ego as our enemy, while the second one, second sees it as our friend. I think it... Um, it's a, such a great way, I think, of um, painting the ego it, when you're still sort of in a position of um, learning to kind of live in sort of a peaceful state with it. It's so much easier to see it, I think, in this sort of dual role versus just all bad. Um, I, really, I really liked this aspect of it. I did have, yeah. Um, I just thought it, it just it took like the the battle uh, aspect out of this work. I felt like you get so tired of blaming the ego for everything, you know. And then right. the ego, because I identify with the ego when I'm the ego. It's you know I'm always kicking myself in the butt, and uh, this gives me permission to kind of ease up a little bit and see the positive aspects of what it means to have an individual self with you know all the the goals uh, involved from the from the personal level besides yeah the level yeah i agree i thought it was it's it's a really um it's a really fascinating way especially we're going to delve into it a little bit more here in uh, in just a second um mar do you have anything to add there um, no, I, I was going to say that I, I do like the idea uh, of the ego facilitating in your spiritual growth, you know, because um, especially with, with New Thought, I mean, we've been sort of taught that the ego is a bad thing, you know, right. it's all bad. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of, yeah, I, I, I kind of like 
their take on this. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. I um, Do you have your book with you, Mar, by chance? Yeah, I do, actually. Okay. I thought we would actually kind of recap a little bit of this chapter. Um, are you on a book or a, a Kindle? Kindle, actually. Hold on a minute. Uh, yeah, Kindle. Okay. If you go to the part um, in this chapter – uh, where the ego is the enemy starts that second paragraph. Yeah. I yeah. think we're going to start. Yeah. You and I will alternate um, paragraphs. Uh, Brian's book is uh, in other hands at the moment, so we'll. Uh, okay. You and I will alternate the reading, and uh, Brian will can actively listen. Um, so, uh, if Mara, if you want to start with at the moment of separation and read that paragraph, please. Okay. Um, at the moment of separation, so the story goes. The ego caused us to believe that God became very angry about our experiment. This immediately created enormous guilt within us. The ego then elaborated on its story by telling us that God would not even would get even and punish us severely for our great sin. So great were the guilt and terror created in us by the belief that this story was true that we had no choice but to repress these emotions deep in our unconscious mind. This spared us from conscious awareness of them. This tactic worked quite well, yet we retained a great fear that the feelings might rise again. To remedy this problem, the ego developed a new belief, that the guilt lay with someone else rather than within ourselves. In other words, we began projecting our guilt onto other people so we could be rid of it entirely. Others became our scapegoats. Then, to ensure that the guilt stayed with them, we became angry with them and continuously attacked them. Okay. And then there's a nice little figure here, uh, the structure of the ego. Uh, um, herein lies the origin of the victim's archetypes and the human race's continual need to attack and to defend against one another. After attacking the people onto whom we project our guilt, we fear that we fear they will attack us in return. So we create strong defenses to protect ourselves and what we see as our complete innocence. At some level, we know we are guilty. So the more we defend against the attack, the more we reinforce our guilt. Thus, we must constantly find people to hate, to criticize, to judge, to attack, and to make wrong simply so that we can feel better about ourselves. This dynamic constantly reinforces the ego's belief system, and in this manner, the ego ensures its own survival. Using this behavior pattern as a reference, we can see why, throughout history, human beings have had such a high investment in their anger and such a great need to break the world into victims and persecutors, villains and heroes, victors and vanquished, winners and losers. And then you would just do that last, that next chapter, Mar. Okay. Uh, well, you want me to keep reading? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we'll just do, if you'll do that next chapter, then we'll stop. Oh, okay. All right. Um, uh, furthermore, yeah, furthermore, the perception we have of we, they, uh, of a we-they world reflects our own internal split between the ego on the one hand, which is a belief in separation, fear, punishments, and death, and spirit on the other, which is the knowledge of love and eternal life. We project this division onto the physical world by always seeing the enemy as out there rather than within ourselves. Although uh-huh. all those... okay, oh, that's, that's good. Um, any thoughts on that? Um... I, I think it pretty much goes back to everything, you know, we've been studying. Um, that whole idea of projecting onto other people what it is that we fear, what it is, mm-hmm. what our insecurities are. 
Um. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I found it interesting. <laughs> I don't know. My thinking on this was: uh, I go, I have lunch with my mom and stepdad every Sunday after after they get home from church, and every Sunday that I go over there, uh, Fox News is on. <laughs> oh, fun! Yay! <laughs> and and so. It, <laughs> It just reminded me so much of that mentality of uh, we have of having to have someone to hate, you know, whether it's a a class, uh, uh, a race, a country, etc. And uh, I just I thought it was interesting that the, how it how Colin uh, Tipping kind of ties this into you know that that idea that we sometimes have of original sin. That's right. that's what it all roots into that that moment of uh, of separation, um, and how you know things like that just continue to uh, perpetuate that uh, separation. And and I'd like to continue on that to um, look a little bit about the idea that we have of Satan and the fall, mm. and that Satan becomes the scapegoat. You know, Satan mm-hmm. was the one that fell, not not us. Um, and then this whole world, uh, in, in many Christian traditions, is is ruled by Satan. Um, so I'm 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 <clears throat> I I think there must be some kind of link there, and I'm not sure exactly how how, how Colin is uh, thinking about that. Mm. Or her, or how we how how we think about that. Well, um, I think that maybe that's like the ultimate projection. Maybe mm-hmm. do you know? You know, I mean, and you could also look at it maybe from the same side of, of projecting onto a and uh, making a vengeful God that things are are going quote wrong for you because you know God is angry with you. Sure, uh, that spelling... be a form of projection as well yeah the ex- the expulsion of adam and eve from the garden mm-hmm. exactly so I, that's um i think a really good summary of the ego as enemy um if you flip over more if you will find section number two the ego as a loving guide um we're going to just do if you'll do that first chapter and then i'll do that second chapter that's in parentheses okay Um, The other friendlier way of looking at the ego, which I find equally tenable and, to be truthful, more attractive, holds that, far from being our enemy, the ego is a part of our soul that acts as our guide in the world of humanity. Its role is to provide opportunities in our lifetime that will fully test our ability to fulfill the mission we carefully planned before we incarnated, the primary purpose of which was to experience a certain agreed-upon amount of separation. When we have reached the degree of separation we signed up for, the process of awakening can begin. That's when we are likely to find radical forgiveness. And then I like how he throws this part in. By the way, I am certain in my own mind that simply by virtue of your having picked up this book and gotten this far into it without throwing it at the wall, you have arrived at the awakening point or you are some distance beyond it. This doesn't mean that you are fully awake all the time. Very few people are. But that you are at least beginning to see what's real and remembering the truth. So I, I love that that is just sort of like the, 
you are ready to wake up just by being willing to wake up. Mm-hmm. Right. That that resonated with me also. As soon as I read that, it's like, oh, he understands the kind of the group mind that if that if we're here doing the work, it means that we're ready to do the work that we've been brought to this point. That you know, all things brought to his teachings. Now. Yeah. Yeah. That all things are unfolding as what. As they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, you have the material you're supposed to have. You're you're with the people you're supposed to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love that. I thought it was just like it was. You know, it was like one of those like divine <laughs> messages or something like. Ah. Um, exactly. You know, and I felt good. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've made it this far. Now that could be ego, but then now we're looking at the good ego, you know, the spiritual exactly. half of ego, this, the, the part of the soul, you know, that bridges that gap. And it's okay for me to feel good <laughs> that, I'm, that I've made it this far, you know, and I don't have to beat me up because I use the word I. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. I love that. It, it's that whole it just it completely uh, recast um, this, and, and I love how um, it's about a page further, uh, where you know he acknowledges that the ego is is one of our guides, but then says <clears throat> the higher self is our other guide, who waits patiently while we journey into illusion with the ego until we are ready to awaken. It is through the gentle whispers of the higher self that we wake up bit by bit, until we finally remember who we are. It is often at this point in our lives that we shift our direction and focus less on material things and become more interested in being of service. It's like, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's almost self-evident for, for those of us in the practitioner course we are mm-hmm. so opening up to the idea of service rather than, you know, creature comforts or the next vacation or whatever. Certainly those, those things happen, but the, the call to service is very, very strong in all of us now. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's been very interesting for, uh, for me on this, uh, on this side of, uh, of things, like sort of post, uh, it's almost like I kind of refer to things right now still in sort of uh, pre-retreat and post-retreat. And um, I was thinking about this as I was, uh, I, was teaching, uh, I was teaching yoga literally like 20 minutes before this and how just even that has changed for me of where it's not just about the, um, you know, the asana aspect thing, the physical aspect of things, but how can I make, my classes be of service to for people on a deeper level, not just, you know, on like a power yoga level, but on a deeper level of, you know, accepting, you know, what is in in that moment of their practice. It's, uh, and I don't know that I would have had that um, opinion, you know, a year ago or even, you know, frankly, six months ago. So it's it's interesting how service kind of keeps coming up and how you see it sort of um, reflecting just in your daily life. Mm-hmm. I really, 
Yeah, I really liked. Uh, I really liked yeah, this chapter a lot. Yoga, yoga without a spiritual foundation is just gymnastics. Exactly, calisthenics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything else um, anyone wants to share on this chapter? Um, hey, Stephen, this is Sushant. I actually hey, got nice. in. Hey, Sushant. Uh, to, Hi, hey, Sweet. guys. I just got in from work, so I am at my apartment, uh, still in work clothes. <laughs> but I just want to let you know that I'm on the call. Go cool. on. <laughs> I'm so happy you are. Hi. Hey. Okay, well, um, shall we proceed to the next chapter then? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, and uh, I'm going to defer to the lovely Mar for chapter hey. seven. Um, well, this this um, I think this chapter really uh, has been resonating with me. I'm still um, taking it in because it's very interesting how um, it talks about attracting certain things in your life that you're sort of uh, kind of working on or even attracting things that you've repressed for a while. And I've been kind of doing these exercises lately in the past couple of the, the past couple of weeks about what is it in me like if somebody bugs me what is it about that person that bugs me that I see in myself which has been kind of a a big theme for me the past couple of weeks and it's funny because and I um I started reading this chapter and um so um any any thoughts about about this chapter with anybody? Did it resonate in a certain way with anybody that that you can we can think of? I, uh, sure. I it's funny that you said that because that's what I wrote my homework to Jesse. <laughs> I've been doing too. And that's my whole work uh, living here with my mom. And there's so much stuff that I'm that I mm. hold on to, and. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I was reaching out to Jesse to, you know, I want to do some, some uh, radical forgiveness worksheets. It's, it's one thing for me to understand it intellectually, but these emotions are so deep and they are so raw in so many cases, it's, it's difficult for me to step back and do that step. Is, is, you know, how am I projecting it? I, I know that I am, and at the same time, I'm still caught up in all the blame and all the stuff emotionally. Right. Well, I think I think for me personally, I think that's where a lot of the a lot of the blocking is. I mean, I like the whole idea of um, rep- operating as a normal psychological defense mechanism. I mean, a lot of that stuff is so, like you said, it's so embedded, it's so deep in there, and. Um, I think that sometimes you just react without even knowing a lot of times what you're reacting to. I mean, mm-hmm. at least for me. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I think that lately I've been really trying to, um, to look at that inside of myself. And particularly when um, I'm faced with certain challenges or I'm faced with certain people that I have to deal with. Like the fact that I'm very bothered by people who are arrogant. And I have mm-hmm. to deal with arrogant people at work. What's that about? Mm-hmm. 
you know. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, ugh. so. Um, so I think that this work has been really um, uh, kind of important for me in terms of how I deal and how I deal with certain certain mm-hmm. scenarios. And so, um, but um, anyways, uh, who's got? Uh, you want to, let's see. Um, I, I feel that I want to do the breath work involved. I don't know if, if any of you have re- read ahead. He makes reference to the, the uh, breath work and getting in touch with the emotions. And I think that's the depth of work that I need to do, that I need to, you know, to yell and scream and, and do the breath work to get all that out. Uh, evidently, it's on a, on a cellular level, or even on an atomic level. Uh, and... We know from from yoga the the skandhas and the the chakras and how you know they can be spinning backwards and the energy can be misplaced um, and and so I'm I'm I want to do that heavier emotional breathing work also. Right. I um I I think and uh, the thing I liked about this little chapter is that it actually condenses everything. Like it 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 sort of blocks out repression and suppression because I think a lot of times we tend to um, use those two words interchangeably. No, and um, I I like how um, he sort of breaks down what repression is and what suppression is. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, those were good insights. Yeah, right. Um, so let's see. Um, Stephen, you wanna you wanna read? Uh, go down to repression and read that that little section right there. Sure. <clears throat> Operating as a normal psychological defense mechanism, repression occurs when feelings like terror, guilt, or rage become so overwhelming that the mind simply blocks them entirely from conscious awareness. This makes repression a powerful mental safety device, for without this blocking mechanism, we could easily go mad. It works so effectively that absolutely no memory of the feelings or the events which precipitated them remains. It can be completely blocked from conscious awareness for days, weeks, or years, sometimes even for the rest of the lifetime. Right. Um, Unlike suppression, which I'll go on, it says... uh, Repression should not be confused with this other similar but less severe defense mechanism. Suppression occurs when we consciously refuse to acknowledge emotions we do not want to feel or express. Though we know they're there, we try to push or stuff them away and refuse to deal with them. But their continued denial for long periods of time may lead to a numbness equivalent to uh, their becoming repressed. Um, Anybody out there going through... uh, can can show an example of of something that might be going on in their lives that they might be suppressing. Sure, Jesse. Um, I just want to share that uh, we we talk about like a spiritual bypass. You know, like uh, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to acknowledge that because it's not spiritual. Mm. I don't want to. I don't want to create something bad. So I'm not going to acknowledge the rage or the point or fear or the whatever. That's totally mm-hmm. a good example of how we can trick ourselves to suppress these things instead of allowing them to come to the surface we can feel them. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I... Was, yeah. I'll go, go ahead. You're kind of going in. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, 
you know, putting them in the category, certain feelings in the category of not spiritual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's how a lot of spiritual teachers and leaders sort of find themselves in the situations where they're being exposed as fraudulent or whatever, or why some of the most spiritual people have like these crazy, this crazy shit happen to them because they're not, they're manifesting stuff. They're like creating bigger, bolder scenarios so they can get the lesson. They're not listening. They're avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And uh, all under the umbrella of being so damn spiritual. So mm. Yeah. Colin talks about that in a later chapter when he's giving a workshop in England and everybody was all spiritual and they couldn't get in touch with their anger. It's a great chapter later on. Um, I have an issue going back to uh, when I was um, in in college and the, the anti-war riots in Washington, D.C., and a friend of mine was shot in the face by a tear gas canister. And the, the rage that I felt, I had to suppress it because I was a paramedic and I had to get him to the hospital. And then I'm, I'm actually... I have two programs. I'm afraid of anger. I'm afraid of expressing my anger because I know that I can hurt people. And I'm, I'm afraid of um, even facing, you know, I, I, it's that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not supposed to feel anger. And then when I do feel anger, it's extremely violent to the point that I thought, I've wished somebody dead and they died. I, that's the first time I've shared this with the group, but I have this huge guilt because, you know, I think I'm such a powerful spiritual being that if I even say, you know, you're going to die tomorrow, the person's going to die. There's a, a thing in yoga. You, if you speak the, the truth long enough, your word becomes law in the universe. So I have this huge guilt that any anger, especially if expressed in, you know, you go to hell or you, you know, go die, and then the person dies. So I've got, I need a lot of therapy. <laughs> which, which leads us to this other small little section, which is repressed guilt and shame, <laughs> which um, says guilt and shame are not the same. You know, we feel guilt when we feel we have done wrong. Shame takes us to a much deeper level of guilt where we have a sense of actually being wrong. With shame, the ego makes us feel inherently wrong at the very core of our being, a feeling that most reliably separates us from everyone and everything. Such shame can be so strong that we have no choice but to repress it. We absolutely cannot handle it otherwise. Any um, any thoughts on that, Brian? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just, I need therapy. I need, I need a qualified practitioner to, uh, you know, to help me because I, I know all this intellectually and yet I still feel such guilt and shame and I, and I cut myself off from life so much. I mean, just being here with mom, I, I spend most of the day just stewing in anger and in victimhood, you know, and I want to get on with my life and I can't and blame and all this stuff. There's just so much stuff there. So I, I need, I need the, the breath work. I need the, the 
the cleansing because I'm very much aware that I'm very stuck. And I, and I love it that, you know, I'm aware of it now, that I know, I know what's going on and I know the work that I need to do and I just need help doing it. Some, you know, it's, some people say, oh, well, of course, you know, you didn't cause that person's death. There's no way that, you know, and it doesn't matter what they say. In my own mind, I said, you know, the person's, you know, you, go, you know, die, and then they died, like, the next day. Right. <laughs> We're all kind of stumped with that one. Brian, I can I can relate to like being in the position where you have to take care of someone because my ex was uh, sick for a long time and uh, she actually had to go through some chemotherapy. And uh, when we'd gotten married and stuff, you know, um, I had to work like two jobs and stuff to take care of her and stuff and. I pretty much put like my whole life on hold because she was sick. So on top of working two jobs and, you know, taking to the hospital and not having sort of any support or any friends in a city where we didn't know each other, um, it was really frustrating. And there were moments where I just was like almost like so depressed that I was questioning where my life had ended up and stuff like that. But the one thing that I came out of that experience um, was also knowing that I am not selfish and I, you know, did really commit to taking care of uh, this person that I loved. And so the big gift in, in that for me was I always thought that, you know, going for my dreams or going for what I wanted was a bad thing um, and that I wasn't a person who wanted to take care of other people or put other people in front of me uh, in like a really, really true sort of like essence or spirit. Um, And so the big thing that I came out of that from that was that I, I am you know, loving that I do care about someone and I can care about someone. However, I do I do understand and relate to what you're going through because it can be isolating and it can be in some way, you know, you have all of these emotions come up where I, at least I felt like really stuck and I felt like my life wasn't moving forward. Uh, so, you know, good for you to recognize that you do need therapy because at that time I didn't even know, like, what I needed in terms of support or where to reach out or where to, you know, to yeah. go. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, you know, it's just, I think you know, the community aspect, like if I, I just, I know that everything happens as it should, but I just think of like, you know, sometimes like when I'm going through stuff, even like in everyday life, I feel like there there are things that I can't talk to anyone about. Even now, even like, you know, being part of practitioner and um, 
PSLA, and sometimes I feel like it feels so debilitating. You were breaking up. I didn't get your last word. It feels so... Hello? Sometimes, especially when you have... Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. now I can. Okay. Yep. So I was saying sometimes, like, you know, certain things feel really debilitating, and, you know, I, I'm really sort of learning in, in terms of, like, asking for help, you know? And sometimes I literally have this sort of knot in my throat or like I feel like I'm going to cry because asking for help with something that I've never spoken to anyone about can feel like if I if I open my mouth or if I say something I don't know like if I'll even be able to stop or I might just like lose my mind or something or mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. like so mm-hmm. I can relate to that feeling of you know being in that, but as I'm I'm saying it too, I'm realizing I'm sort of having an epiphany. It's also that like it's this this thought that I'm choosing to believe that I'm I'm stuck, you know, like because in in the sense like my life is moving forward, but you know I'm choosing to believe in that moment for myself that ah this thing is making me stuck or this you know. This thing is not helping mm-hmm. me move forward. So, what if it was impossible? What if it was impossible to be stuck? Hello. I'm sorry, I didn't quite. I didn't quite what hear that. that. Uh, you didn't hear that. that. Was, oh, I'm sorry, that was just. That was just. I said, "What if it was impossible to be stuck?" Hmm. Yeah, it's just the thought, like, you know, it's the thought that I'm stuck. Exactly. And even that thought that you're stuck will require specific action on your part mm-hmm. to uh, allow whatever healing that needs to unfold to unfold, right? Right. And so you're not really stuck. You just think you're stuck, or you have this fantasy, and trust me, I'm speaking from experience here, fantasy of what healing is going to look like. And it's that that constant fantasy of of things will be better when. You know, things Mm -hmm. will be better when I heal this. Things will be better when I get another job. Things will be better when I move. Things will be better when I have a partner. And it's the same trick. It's that same trick. And it's exactly what um, Byron Katie talks about when we have a problem with what is. And it can manifest as the belief that we're stuck. And since we're stuck, something's not right. If I could only heal this, if I could only have that aha moment, if I could only move through whatever then I could feel peaceful and happy and whatever. So the question is, you know, can you... Okay, I'll share this. Kind of, I, I'm sharing this because it's funny to me. So this last year, I've really been moving through a lot of body image stuff. Uh, I've, you know, I've probably gained 15, 20 pounds since I met, you know, since I really committed to Christopher, and I don't know if I've lost it or whatever, I don't weigh myself, but 
I was in a fitness class today, and I looked in the mirror, and I thought I looked fat. I was like, oh, I look fat. And then I had this aha moment. I was like, so you're fat. Who cares? Look at all the great stuff that happens, even though you're fat. You have this belief that, like, once you're not fat, then the life of your dreams is going to unfold. Well, since you've been fat, or what, you, what you're calling, choosing to call fat, you've fallen in love, you've got married, you're in the process of adopting children, work has never been better, uh, Project Service LA is thriving and growing, you've launched a practitioner program, you get to do lots of spiritual studies all the time, there's people around, you have a beautiful community, so who gives a shit? And then the rest of the class, I was like, I'm fat. I'm fat. How great is that? I'm fat. <laughs> and I'm fat, and that's okay. And I got to tell you, it was one of the it was a really good feelings. I was like, okay, what does that mean? I was thinking, I gained weight with that, before knowing that it was a spiritual that there was something out of alignment with my body, my heart, soul, whatever. Well, of course, there's something that we aren't. Thought. Why am I that I'm not that, that I'm not that I'm not so whether or not I'm spiritual? So this is bullshit. So we that we allow ourselves to get caught up, and so I was just like, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, and I'm hateful, I'm fat, and I'm smart, I'm fat, and I'm fit, you know. And I just started having fun with it, and I just looked around and like, I'm being the I'm being the best class, so I'm fat, you know, not. I'm obviously capable of a body. I'm fat that, that I can't drive a car. I'm fat that, that, that I can't help me. Fat that seems like I've never felt that like, like I feel good. I just did just the extra weight. I'm doing what I think happens to remedy it, but now I don't want to remedy it. There's no remedy because I just live healthy lifestyle. To live a healthy lifestyle, if I choose. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I think we all have that idea of once we're enlightened, you know, life is going to be so much easier or once we're really spiritual or once we drop the ego. And uh, it looks like it's not really true. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, uh, you know, I had this thing where, you know, I had, you know, of course, working through like daddy issues for so long. And I had this idea of what it was going to look like when I finally, you know, quote, solved all of those. And then I had this moment of where I just realized of where I was like, okay, I just have to make the decision that that I'm done with this. Like, it's not, there's not like some big bell and whistle production that's going to happen. Like, I just have to be in this, this mindset of like, okay, you know what? That's what happened. It's, it's done. And then I was done with it. It was never like this big, like, you know, gates of heaven opening up kind of thing. And and I know that it has worked because, like, now when I, like, I can actually talk about my father without actually, you know, having this sort of deep internal reaction of, like, you know, gnashing and wailing or whatever. But it was just when I made the decision that, okay, this this story doesn't – is done. Like, it doesn't need – it doesn't need to play out in this certain way – I get to decide that it's over. But like I didn't have... Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, um, no, because I was going to say, I mean, the fact that you're even aware of the story, I think that's, 
that that's half of it right there. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I, I think that's part of the growth, too, is at least being aware that that story exists. I think for a lot of people is they don't even know the story exists. They just right. feel a certain way. And, well, um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, there was this great uh, talk that I was listening to of Marianne Williamson's not long ago of where, you know, she said she, had, she used to have this idea that, you know, once I understand all the issues of my childhood and, and why I behave like this, then I will change that. And she said, you know, years went on, and, of course, she understood these issues, but she still wasn't changing it. It wasn't until she made a conscious decision to change something that it changed. Right. Yeah. Like, I think we, we really overcomplicate it sometimes. <laughs> like, it's really, you know, it's, it's like losing weight. Like, we think, oh, I've got to join this gym and do this class and order food from this service, when it's really not that complicated. It's I take in less, I burn off more. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to this work of where we think, okay, I've got to light this fire <laughs> I've got to turn in this direction. And sometimes it's really just saying, you know what? How much longer am I going to tell this story? Right. Um... That resonates. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I've been beating, I've been beating myself up for 40 years. Yeah. So, like, it's funny because now we're talking about guilt. So now shame, right? I mean, I like mm-hmm. the whole idea of, of guilt and shame because the whole idea of, of guilt is that you've done something wrong as opposed to feeling shame, which is the idea that you are wrong. Mm. Um, I, I had that the, experience in China a lot, that the Chinese don't feel guilt. They... Uh, they don't have the same, like we feel guilty if we cheat on the test and it's normal in China to cheat, to cheat on the test. But if you get caught, if you are shamed in front of your peers, shame in China is, is horrible, horrible, horrible. And I, and I thought it was an interesting cultural variance, you know, cause we're not so much on shame. We're more on, on feeling guilty. Our Judeo Christian, you know, we got to feel guilty about stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that chapter was a great, uh, showing the difference between the two and, and making well, it very, very clear. Yeah, well, I like this whole, like, shame blocks energy. Um, let's see, you want to read that, that, that one paragraph, Stephen? Uh, yes, let me... Okay. Sorry. There we go. Is it under... Oh, yeah, okay. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the one after repressed guilt and shame. Young children can be easily shamed, say when they wet themselves, get an erection, show anger, act shy, and so on. While these may be natural occurrences, the children nevertheless feel shame, and the cumulative effects of this feeling can become overwhelming. Consequently, they repress their shame, but it remains in the unconscious mind as well as in the body. It becomes locked into their system at the cellular level and creates an energy block in the body. If left unresolved for too long, this block gives rise to either mental and emotional problems, physical problems, or both. Depressed emotion is now recognized by many researchers to be one of the principal causes of cancer. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. Any, any thoughts on that? 
Well, I'm a cancer survivor. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And it's also, again, the power of the word. Uh, for many, many years, I said that I had cancer, and it wasn't true. And I'm not, I'm not sure why I said it, but I just said it and said it and said it and I had cancer. And uh, then I had to get rid of it. Um, so all that stuff of guilt and shame and, and uh, the power of our thoughts and the power of our subconscious. I mean, I, I subconsciously thought myself into having cancer. Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, because the way I sort of read this is like, and just in my own experience, that whole idea of feeling so wrong about something or feeling so much shame over something that I so get so wrapped up in that story that I don't allow for anything else to flow. At least, you know, some mm. of experiences mm-hmm. um, where I'm kind of sort of letting go of some of that stuff right now. Um, but, I mean, anybody else have had that? Anybody else? has had that experience of, of, of feeling so guilty about something or feeling so much shame that you don't allow for anything else to move? Yeah, that totally sure. resonated with me what you just said because, like, you know, I can think of things that I did, like, in my 20s that I was so ashamed of that, like you said, I would just block flow because I, would, I, was, I was so scared, you know, someone would find out about, you know, X, Y, or Z that I, uh, you know, I wouldn't participate in a lot of things because I was, I would put myself in like new situations and stuff. And it's interesting what that does to you. Right. Yeah. Let's see. So repressed feelings. Okay, I'll read this one paragraph. A large trauma such as the death of a parent can cause a child to repress emotion. Likewise, something as seemingly insignificant as a casual critical remark interpreted as meaningful or an event incorrectly assumed to be a tra- the child's fault can cause emotions to be repressed. For example, children nearly always interpret a divorce as their fault. Research suggests that children remember conversations their parents had while they were still in the womb. So a discussion about an unwanted pregnancy be- before birth can lead to a child's feelings, a child's feelings, feeling wanted and afraid of being abandoned. Such feelings could be repressed even at such an early time in the child's life. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that one? Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. so, I love um, this next. Have... Uh, I love this next one about the generational guilt. Go for it. You want to read it? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Groups and even nationalities commonly repress accumulated generational guilt. Without doubt, this is the case now with Black and White Americans over slavery. The racial problems we now experience in America all stem from the unresolved and repressed guilt within white people and unresolved and repressed rage in blacks. I mean, that's so clear. That's so true, yeah. But you don't really think about it until he said it, until he wrote that. It's like, oh, gosh, why don't we as a society recognize that, admit it, and start doing some healing work towards around it? Yeah, well, you know, just this alone. I mean, uh, it'll. Uh, I, I just hope one of these days that we have an honest talk about, you know, race relations in this country. And it was really interesting because it sort of reminds me of of um, 
uh, Marianne Williamson, uh, one of her Monday things that I went to last year, was doing the whole Ferguson thing, and she was talking about Ferguson, which kind of tripped everybody out because, you know, everybody just assumed that it was going to be Marianne Williamson doing Marianne Williamson stuff, and she decided to talk about Ferguson, and she decided to sort of give everybody a history lesson, and one of the things that she said was the fact that we have yet to apologize for this that we, we have yet to really look at this and and really deal with it. We've not we've not really confronted it face to face and it was one of those things that was kind of powerful because she I don't know if any of you guys were there but it was she literally made all the black people in the room stand up. <laughs> she made all the white people in the room apologize to all the black people in the room. And <laughs> great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those things where she sort of made people lay their cards on the table. It's like this is something that you have to look at and this is something that you sort of have to recognize. And it was just such an uncomfortable feeling for everybody around, not just black people who were standing up there and have never had the experience of having people apologize, but Mm. um, but having all the white people in the room who I think a lot of them were really earnest about it, but I think a lot of them had never been asked that question. They'd never been mm-hmm. put in that situation, and not that anybody or not that, you know, anybody in that room or the white people in that room were necessarily racist, but this was something that that was never, mm-hmm. they never had to do that. And yeah. so they had to confront some of their own stuff and maybe some mm-hmm. of their own shame and maybe some of their own blocking of energy mm-hmm. because of that shame. And um, our, our white man privilege, you know, how we just take it for granted. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just kind of, it was sort of a powerful moment. Um, yeah. And, and it sort of reminds me, I mean, of this whole chapter kind of, and that whole day sort of encapsulated this whole, this, pretty much this whole chapter. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was really interesting. Um, but um, let's see this. Uh, do you want to finish re- reading uh, that last paragraph there, um, Stephen? And I have the generational guilt. Oh, yeah, it has become clear to me that during my workshops uh, that. It has become clear to me during my workshops that a lot of the pain people carry is not their own and may go back several generations. Most frequently, it is their parents' pain they have taken on, but it might also be their grandparents or siblings. When we are children, our energy is purer and less fractured than it is when we become adults. So children feel able to carry that pain where a wounded adult may not. The children forget to give it back, and they make it their own. All right. Let's see. I'll read. um, We'll go on. The dark side. Um, We also experience intense shame over aspects of ourselves we dislike and therefore disown. Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychoanalyst, referred to this as our shadow because it represents the dark side of ourselves, the part we do not want to see or have seen by others. This part of ourselves knows we are capable of killing another human being, knows we could have taken part in the concentration camps had we been German uh, during that time, Uh, knows we might have owned and brutalized slaves um, had we been born white in in the South before the Civil War could hurt or rape someone, is greedy or avaricious, um, is revenge, is rageful or vengeful, or in some other way uh, deviant or unacceptable. Any such characteristics we possess or areas of our lives that bring us feelings of shame we classify as our shadow and repress. Mm-hmm. 
Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's what uh, Michael was talking about during our retreat, the shadow exactly. shadow side, exactly. and all the work that we were we were doing there. That's great, important stuff. Right, sitting on all three. This uh, repressing this kind of energy is like sitting on a volcano. We never know when our strength will give out. Thus, allowing the the shadow or the lava to happen. Being in a scapegoat. Um, and we can project all that thing. That way we can be free of it, at least temporarily. So this is when we talk about projection. Um, basically, that, that whole idea of trying to disown it and make it about somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. You have a book, Sushant? Yeah, I do. Oh, you want to read projection? Yeah, sure. Okay, go um, Even when we have repressed the feelings and or memories associated with a life event, we know on an unconscious level that shame, guilt, or self-criticism associated with it remains with us. So we attempt to rid ourselves of that pain by taking it out of ourselves and transferring it onto someone or someone else outside of ourselves. This projection allows us to forget we ever possessed such feelings. Once we project what we do not want to own onto someone else, we see them rather than ourselves as possessing those qualities. So if we repress our guilt and then project it, we make the other person the wrong one. If we repress our anger and then project it, we see them as the one who's angry. We can accuse them of all the things we feared we would be accused of ourselves. No wonder we feel so relieved when we project. In so doing, we make someone else responsible for everything terrible that happens to us and for what we see as negative about ourselves. Then we can demand that they be punished so we can feel even more righteous and safe from attack. This explains why we love to watch the news on television. The news provides us with an opportunity to project all our guilt and shame onto the murderers, rapists, corrupt politicians, and other bad people we see on the screen. After doing so, we can go to bed feeling okay about ourselves. The news and all of the other television programs that feature bad people and situations endlessly provide us with convenient scapegoats upon whom to project. Fox News. <laughs> right. Um, ah, okay. So I'll take this. Recognize when you're projecting. Um, as soon as you find yourself judging someone and getting angry, you know you're projecting. Anger serves as a constant companion of projection, for you always use this emotion to justify the projection of your self-hatred. What you find objectionable about this person simply serves as a reflection of that part of you that you have rejected and denied in yourself or your shadow and projected onto them instead. If this were not so, you would not be upset. Ha. Um, <laughs> any examples this week? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think for me is it, um, when, one of my big things that upsets me about other people is arrogance. Um, so I have to look at that. Um, I have to look at that. 
to myself, like, like, what oh, was it that making me so upset about this person who's so arrogant? Um, yeah, it's the same work I need to do with my mom, find out what I'm projecting. Yeah, right. Um, and it probably, you know, and I know that's, that's a sense of a lot of it. Um, so that that was sort of my, my work the past couple of weeks. Anybody else? There's some noise going on in the background. I don't know what that, that is. Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing that, too, especially after um, uh, the, the call last Wednesday when we, we did a little bit of the Byron Katie work. Um, I've been doing that a lot at work of the finding the, 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 the employees that have been especially frustrating for me looking at that like, oh, okay, because I may not do that exact same behavior, but the root of that behavior I possess and display too, and that's why it's triggering me. Right. So I think, I think my employees would say I've been much more pleasant this week. <laughs> right. Ah, okay, let's see. Um, Sushant, you want to read? Um, if you spot it, you got it? Yeah. Um, if you spot it, you got it. It feels like the other person is doing something to you to make you angry. However, when you own that your feelings being with you, uh, feelings begin with you, not with them, you will drop the need to feel victimized and realize that the person is doing these things not to you but for you, enabling you to take back the projection and love it in yourself. Though repression and projection are meant as temporarily, temporary relief valves for the psyche, the ego co-opts them as the means to increase and prolong the feeling of separation. Hence, denial, repression, and projection become permanent ways of being, uh, of being for us, at least until we begin to awaken. At that point, we slowly become aware of these mechanisms and how we use them to create and maintain separation. The task, then, is to wean ourselves off these mechanisms and begin to take responsibility for creating the circumstances of our lives rather than blaming everything on others. Cool. Stephen, you want to take fear of intimacy? Sure. Every person we meet offers us the opportunity to choose between projection or forgiveness, union or separation. However, when it comes to close personal relationships, the more intimately we become with someone, the closer they get to our true self. Thus, it becomes all the more likely they, they will discover all that unpleasant stuff, our shadow material, that we have denied and repressed, the prospect of which creates enormous fear inside us, the temptation to project it, all unto them becomes almost irresistible. At this point, the honeymoon is over. The fear of intimacy becomes so strong that the relationship is likely to fall apart. Most do so within six months to a year, often with a lot of acrimony and painful emotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, see, I'll read this one. All relationships are for healing. To be awake means to fully understand how this all works and how the ego has skillfully used our spiritual intelligence, which is always moving us in the direction of healing and growing. 
to provide us with people whose role is to mirror our own projections and repress self-hatred. Only then can we heal the separation within ourselves and become whole. This is the purpose of all relationships. As we saw in Jill's story, radical forgiveness can save a relationship. Jill and Jeff are still happily married. However, this is not necessarily the goal. Um, If the true purpose of our relationship has been fulfilled, which is to say the healing has occurred, the relationship may simply dissolve naturally and peacefully. When both parties understand radical forgiveness and use the technology, the parting can be loving, respectful, and relatively pain-free. If, on the other hand, the relationship breaks off before the healing has taken place, the parties will likely go off and find another partner with very similar characteristics who will resonate the same issues for them all over again. Many of us do this over and over again, and we can often see the pattern quite clearly when it is pointed out. So the whole idea, if I'm wrong, is until we find that healing, we are bound to repeat the same thing over and over again. No? True. It me? <laughs> yeah. Um, True. Uh, okay, it's, the hour's already passed. I know that we have one more chapter. Jesse, what do you want us to do? Is Jesse gone? He may be. I think actually, you know, Amar, I was thinking there's actually one part that I think really kind of um, pulls all this together, and okay. we could probably go over that and then just. All right. Are you? Does everyone agree with that? I'm. I'm down. Like maybe that. maybe four more minutes. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, so I think if you look, um, because this one doesn't really have the heading, it's it's the chapter that starts with "If you want to know what you dislike about yourself." Mm, Where everyone found that one? It's maybe a. It's on chapter eight, maybe about a page, and if you're on the Kindle. Okay, okay, I got it. If you want to know what you dislike about yourself and have likely that part. Yeah, do you want to go ahead and read that chapter and I'll read the next chapter? Sure, no worries. Um, Sorry, paragraph, paragraph. Okay. (laughs) If you read that paragraph, I'll read the next one. Right. Uh, If you want to know what you dislike about yourself and have likely disowned, simply look at what annoys you about the people who come into your life. (laughs) Look into the mirror they provide. If you seem to attract a lot of angry people into your life, you probably have not dealt with some anger of your own. If people seem to withhold love from you, some part of you is unwilling to give love. If people seem to steal things from you, part of you behaves dishonestly or feels dishonest. If people betray you, maybe you have betrayed someone in the past. Look at the issues that upset you, too. If abortion really makes you mad, maybe a part of you shows little reverence for life in other ways, or a part of you knows it could abuse a child. If you are passionately against homosexuality, maybe you cannot accept the part of you that sometimes feel homosexually inclined. Have we all been there? Uh, yeah. Who, me? Yeah, I had, this, I had this experience today in class where there's a student who really sort of like annoys me and I get angry at her. And uh, there's, I, I went in and I was like, why is, why do I get angry with her? What is at the core of it? And I think what came up is that I feel that she's representing uh, this part of me that shows that I cannot, like, have love for her. 
or that I cannot show her love. And because I see that, that I cannot show her love, it makes me angry. And so I somehow, um, you know, want to be angry in her because she's representing to me almost like my uh, not ability to be loving or in my mind as I think I should be or how I should act as a loving person. So that epiphany today in class was a really big one for me. But um, it's also, I think it also has to do with this thing of like, she should be acting a certain way in order for her to be a good student or in order for me to be able to like love her as a good student, which is like total BS because she shouldn't be acting anyway. And in that way, I'm almost like becoming a dictator. Mm. But something that I also sort of like realized was that, you know, what if that situation with her never changed? Because I had this epiphany and I, I shared it with Mike a couple of weeks ago. When I have these situations that I feel like I just want to get out of or, you know, situations that seem like patterns that keep coming up in my life, I... I thought to myself and I was like, what if that never changes till like, till the day I die? So like if I have something come up with my finances, which is a pattern, or if I'm in a relationship with someone that feels like, you know, the same pattern, and I think to myself, what if that pattern never changes for the rest of my life, I'm stuck with that? How would I choose to be different? And so the same thing with the student, I was like, what if my relationship with her never changes? She's the same. Nothing about her changes. How would I choose to act different? And that was like a big thing for me. Well, yeah, I, I can I can imagine. I mean, just the fact that you recognize that, I think changes it. Yeah, that's yeah. a great insight. A really great insight. Yeah, I had the uh, similar with my with my mom. Like I talk to my mom pretty much almost every day, and my mom is such a worrier. Like she worries about everything. She worries if she doesn't have something to worry about. And I was finding I was getting so like impatient with her and very judgmental. But then I like the more I looked at it, I was like that's kind of my shadow work is that, you know, that I worry a lot. And then, so it's made, it's kind of made me more compassionate and patient with her. They're like, okay, I carry the same shit sometimes and just calm your ass down, Stephen. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, um, this, um, I actually like this, this paragraph over here, like, um, Hall of Mirrors, like, um, it's true. It's like, for example, sometimes we do not identify with the specific behavior as much as we do with the underlying meaning that it holds for us. So sometimes it's having to look at that. For me, it's not necessarily all that literal. Um, a lot of times it's what it represents or what that what, mm-hmm. what exactly that means for me a lot of times. It's not, uh, you know, so sometimes I really have to look at that, um, which has been kind of a big one for me too. Um, again, with arrogance. It's not so much that I feel I'm an arrogant person, but what is it 
what underlining meaning does it hold for me? You know, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of it goes back to me being a kid. You know, a lot of that stuff, um, not being seen. Um, so a lot of so so I think a lot of it is more about meaning for me, anyways. Um, Any other thoughts on this chapter? Did you want to go on, um, Stephen? Or I think, in the interest of time, maybe we uh, start wrapping. Yeah, up. I need to. Yeah. I need to jump off. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So, uh, Mar, do you want to pray us Absolutely. out? Absolutely. Uh, um, I am so so feeling so grateful right now um, for this gathering. I am grateful to have gotten more insight and that we've all gotten more insight. I'm grateful for this time of sharing and learning. What I do offer up is any feelings of insecurity that we go on this week, um, feeling perfect, whole, and complete in every way, um, that we are, we go off and that uh, we see ourselves for who we are. Um, I declare that we be kind to ourselves, that we be gentle with ourselves, um, that we really get to see the truth of who we are. Um, And I share this with everybody, and I share that we all have a great, amazing week, and that we take everything that we've learned today and we go off, and, and that's it. And I love you guys, and this is really good. Amen. Uh, amen. I love y'all too. I will uh, talk to y'all, I guess, Saturday. Sushant, I want right. to call you in like 10 minutes. Is that okay? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. Have a great Bye, night. Bye, Thanks Bye. for facilitating. Great job. Bye. Right. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.